exactly what is the voice of the Spirit and what's the voice of ourself. Think about people who bow down to a false idol and they pray to an idol and they say, oh, you know, oh, you know, let's talk about Michigan, right? Oh, football. (laughs) Please help me. Please speak to me. Please give me wisdom for tomorrow. Now, do you think a person who's praying to an idol of some kind may hear an impression, may hear a voice, may get some instruction from some source? Well, based on what I've read, they do. Something speaks to them. Somebody may say, ah, it's always a demon speaking to them. Maybe. It could be just themselves speaking to them because you talk to yourself all the time. I tell myself stuff all the time. When I'm playing basketball and I miss a shot, I always say the same thing. Terry, you idiot. If I don't get back on defense to guard my guy, I say, Terry, you loser. And when somebody else makes a basket over me, I say, oh, cheater. (laughs) So the spirit does speak to us and Sometimes knowing how he speaks to us in our heart is hard to articulate. Sometimes people tell me, the Lord told me this or told me that. And um, I know what they mean. I know that I'm supposed to be a preacher because the Holy Spirit, God, called me to this work. Now, I can't say that I don't have the testimony that Charles Stanley had. Charles Stanley, when he was called a pastor, he went outside and he said, Lord, you really want me to be a pastor? And he felt like God wanted him to do that. And so he looked up at the stars and he said, Lord, if you want me to be a pastor, let a star fall. And boosh, the star fell. And he thought, well, if you're really the big God of all things, then you can make it happen twice. And so he said, Lord, if you want me to be a pastor, make another star fall. Boosh. <laughs> I've never had that happen to me. But I have had some moments where I feel like the Lord has giving me something to do, you know, something to say. So last week, as we, as we wound up our sermon, we were talking about despising not prophecies. And we talked about some reasons why people can despise prophecies. But I want to take a, take a look here at the rest of the section, and then we'll, uh, we'll be done. I tried something new here. I think that's a bad idea. I can see that. Verse 19. Do not quench the spirit. Not despise prophesying, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Let's make a short prayer and then I'll give you this sermon. Lord, I pray that you help. There's a lot of things here about this, Father, that I'd like to say. And I, I'm sure there's a lot of things, Lord, that I should not say. And um, give me the wisdom to not say those things. And I pray, Lord, for the help of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, I know that whatever is needed for the whatever these individuals who are here today need. I know the Holy Spirit can supply it to them. Through your word, specifically, or in that special way that only, only you can do. I, I entrust all these things to you and to your wisdom. In Christ's holy name I ask it. Amen. Now, this is about not despising prophecies or a.k.a. preaching. Now, I feel confident to say that prophecy here is referring to preaching because, the, because the, it is the preaching of the word has been the understanding of this passage for centuries all the way up until the 20th century. And it's only from the 20th century forward in the, in the, in the commentaries that I read that anybody ever said it meant anything other than preaching. Now, and that's only changed in the 20th century because of the rise of the charismatic movement and it's resulting confusion. Now, so there's been some good things that come from it, but 
Jonathan Edwards, in his little, uh, he wrote a little book about the, uh, the first great awakening. He, his question was, is the great awakening a work of God or not? And he talks about the Holy Spirit working in an unusual way because when, when the great awakening began, there were some, some unusual things were taking place within the churches. People were crying out for mercy during the sermon, not because it was too long, but because they were in the grip of conviction. They felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit for their sins. They realized they were unrighteous, and people were crying out. When Jonathan Edwards would preach his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, he would be preaching about that the only thing that keeps you out, he's like, he said, the whole world is like covered, like hell is covered with a film. And you are walking across it. You could break through at any moment and plunge into the abyss. And the only thing that keeps you from plunging through is the providence and kindness of God. He likened our, our human existence to being like a spider hanging from its own web, suspended over a flame. And if the flame just licked up a little bit, the, the, the web would be broken and you'd fall into the fire. And so this great awakening takes place and there's lots of incredible, strange things happening. And Edwards says, he evaluates all the things that he hears and here's what he says. He says, no doubt... There have been excesses in this movement. But he said some of these movements obviously seem to have been of God because people were actually coming to faith in Christ. They were having their lives changed. The drunkards were giving up the booze. The beaters of wives were giving up the beating of their wives. Communities were being changed. Churches were being revitalized. Revival is sweeping through. People are being converted in a big way. And he says, no doubt about it. This is the work of God. Have there been excesses? Have people gone too far sometimes? Are there some people who are faking or feigning these fits because they want the attention? He said, of course. But he said, even though there are excesses, the excesses, the extremes are good too. Because it's caused all of us to go back to the Bible once again to see what does the Bible actually say about these things. Because when there's something doubtful, the only source of true truth is God's word. It pushes people back to God's word. So up until the 20th century, every commentary I've read, even all up until into the mid-20th century, every commentary you read says that prophecies here is talking about preaching. Every one of them. And so I don't feel like I'm on shaky ground at all to say that this prophecies here is talking about preaching. Now, preaching is such a wonderful thing, isn't it? Now, how many of you guys think fishing is wonderful? Go ahead, say amen. Now we got hunting season coming on, and hunting's pretty wonderful too, isn't it? Sure it is. Hunting and fishing, you know, and I see the ladies are always doing crafting, and scrapbooking's a wonderful thing, isn't it? <laughs> Making quilting squares and all the stuff. That, I mean, there's so many wonderful things in the world, right? But preaching... It's wonderful to me because that's my business. I'm a preacher. Now, preaching is an art form. Everybody who goes to school for preaching, to be a pastor, always is going to go through a thing called homiletics. Homiletics is the art of preaching. How to give a sermon. Now, maybe when you were in high school or college, you had to give a persuasive speech or a talk. Maybe you've been in sales, you've had to give a sales pitch. You know, when I was learning how to sell washers and dryers at Sears, 
you had to assess the need. What does the customer really need? Because you don't want to sell them something they don't need. You want to sell them something they do need. Assess the need. You assess the need, then you would you'd fulfill the need with a product. And then you would tell them all about the product, the, the virtues of the product. Then you'd, have, you'd introduce the price. And then when you got done telling them how great it was and what a great deal it was, the last thing you had to do was to draw the net or ask for what? Ask for the sale. Can we write this up today? Let's get the paperwork going. Any kind of way. Compelling. If you've ever been with a good salesman, you felt the pressure. You felt the persuasiveness where they actually have you thinking you really need what they're selling. And this is what preaching is an art form. It compels people. It takes them along a path to decision. Now, not everybody likes to acknowledge that preaching is an art form, but it is. The great Phillips Brooks in his Yale lectures on preaching, he said the following, preaching is truth through personality. Because every preacher has his own unique personality, his own unique way of talking, his own sense of humor, and so it's truth through personality. So you'll find that preachers are all different. Very different. Charles Spurgeon, in his lectures to his students, he goes through every aspect of a sermon and he especially the delivery of sermons. Now Spurgeon, he was a big critic, critic of accents, of the way people talked in Great Britain, because they had a lot of different regional dialects in Britain, not unlike the good old U.S. of A. Now this morning, we had Brother John Dillingham speak to us. And Brother John said, you can tell I'm not from around here. We could, couldn't he? Couldn't we? He's from Mississippi. Right? Slightly different. My wife Valerie here, she's from Arkansas. Not quite the same. I myself have lived all over the South, so my accent is a, is a hodgepodge of all kinds of things. Then we live here in northern Michigan where the accent is... It's exactly what I was going to say, Daryl. <laughs> the accent... What accent? The accent is perfect. So everybody is different. All preachers are different. Now, there are some preachers who are very stirring, who are able to command great audiences and compel you to listen. I've always been envious of of preachers from England or Scotland because they have that cool little accent. For a long time on SermonAudio.com, I would tune in every morning just to listen to the Irish preachers preach because I liked the way they would string their words together. I can remember reading my Bible, you know, when I was nobody else was around, I'd read it out loud, and I'd try to read in the accent. <laughs> try, to, try to get a little better at it, you know. Because people's ears perk up when they hear a different accent. Now, there are some preachers who are very stirring in the world. These are men who possess powers of intellect combined with oratorical and, rhetor- oratorical and rhetorical skills. And they cause people to enjoy listening to them or to want to hear them. But we have to be cautious because style and form do not always good preaching make. A sermon must above all things be the truth. And friends, you need to be aware that you can dress a lie. You can dress an error. You can robe a false doctrine in a beautiful delivery with compelling arguments. Just like you can the truth. And so as you're hearing preaching, 
You have to evaluate preaching as you go along. You have to evaluate it for truthfulness. Is this the truth? Is this the truth? This is what the Apostle Paul tells the Thessalonians. He says, test everything. Don't just accept preaching. Don't just accept the voice from your pulpit. Test it. Test it. The question may come, well, how in the world do we do that? How do we test preaching? You have to test the content of the sermon. What is actually being said. Acts 17 verse 11 says that the Apostle Paul, after he left Thessalonica, he went to a place called Berea. And the Bereans, the Bible says, were more noble than the Thessalonians because the Bereans, they examined the Scriptures to see if what Paul said was so. So they gave Paul an honest hearing and then they took what they heard and they said, are these things true based on what we know of the Scriptures? And they checked him out. That's why in a church like ours, we always say, open your Bible, open your copy of God's Word and turn there because we want all these sermons to be coming to you from the pages of God's Word, not from the... uh, (laughs) I'm not going to say that. Test by agreement with Scripture. 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 to 4 says we must test the spirits to see whether they be of God. And the reason Paul, John says we should do that is because there are many antichrists that are in the world. Those people who oppose Christ. Now my friends, I wish I could say any church that says Christian on the door or on the sign is a true Christian church, but that's not so. There are many pseudo-Christian groups in the world. The devil, he always robes his errors with truth. Every error that's fatal has a little bit of truth in it. Test the sermons with Scripture, which means that you yourself need to know something about the Scripture. You need to know something. For instance, yesterday, it was football Saturday, right? Now, so far, I only care about one team in college football, only one team, is I'm kind of on the Coach Prime bandwagon at Colorado. And yesterday, they got spanked by Oregon, 42 to 6, 42 to 6. Now, the thing I like about football are triple plays. Because when the pitcher can pick off the guy at first base. Oh, wait a minute. What are we talking about? How dare you correct me? What do you know? Well, right there is an example I'm talking about, right? You have to know something about something to spot error. I said yesterday was what day? Football Saturday. I talked about a football team. Which team? Colorado. And immediately I start describing yesterday's game by talking about what? Baseball. There's some knowledge that exists there. And so with Scripture, you need to know something about Scripture yourself. The reason why you should read the Bible regularly is so that you can protect yourself from error. 
You have to protect yourself from error because there are many antichrists. There are many deceivers in the world and they will try to seduce you and lure you away. John says in his letter to 1 John, he says, I write unto you little children because there are many seducers going out into the world. So you need to know something about Scripture. Don't let me do all your thinking for you. Don't let me do all your scripture fine for you. You need to take up that holy book and get to know it for yourself. You say, well, I don't know where to start. Start at Genesis. One pastor said there's three books you, should, you need to know pretty good. Genesis, Romans, and the third one I disagree with, but I'll tell you, Revelation. And those three will keep you pretty occupied. If I were you, I'd spend most of my time in Romans. <laughs> and, let me, and let me do your revelation thinking for you. <laughs> Test with Scripture. Test to see if what you're hearing from the pulpit is in agreement with the character of God. Because sometimes God is presented by pastors and preachers in a way that makes him appear to be something that he's not. I was a member of a church for a long time, and the pat not a long time, but for a couple years, and the pastor would say, Here we focus on the fear of God. And boy, howdy, every Sunday they brought down thunder and fire week after week until finally you're ducking every time you go outside. Is God going to get me today? Now, God is a God who should be feared and respected, yes? But God is also a God who loves us. And Micah 6 says that God is merciful and he delights in showing mercy. The psalmist says he remembers our frame. He knows we are just dust. Is it consistent with the character of God? Which again means you need to do something about your God. Test it by prayer. Lord, is what he's saying the truth? Is this true? Help me to understand if it is the truth. Because sometimes learning, learning truth is difficult, isn't it? Now, the kids are all back in school, right? And they're going to encounter some subjects in school that are difficult. One of my kids right now is taking algebra. Oh, that's why I dropped out of 10th grade. <laughs> algebra, too hard. Too rough. That's why I'm not a doctor. Only reason. No, I'm teasing. <laughs> There are things that are just hard to learn. And I can remember sitting in class and praying, Lord, I, I can't do this. I, don't, I, need, I need help me understand. And some things in God's word are hard to understand. You have to pray about them. Lord, help me to know. Help me to know what the truth is here. Help me to understand this. Am I seeing this the right way? The fourth thing is tested by thinking. Now, thinking is tiring work. You ever balance your checkbook? You ever remember, remember going through the registry, the registry, ticking stuff off and adding it up and looking where you're two cents off? Oh. You ever try to write a research paper? You're trying to get all, get all that stuff formulated just right, getting all your footnotes and quotations in there, your citations. Frustrating. Thinking is hard work. And, but if you don't think, you're going to be led astray. Listen to Proverbs 4, 26. Ponder the path of your feet. Now this ponder is a word that has survived the modern translations. It's in the authorized version. 
It's in the modern translation as well. It's in the English standard here. Ponder. What does it mean to ponder? To think about. To think carefully about. To consider. To roll it over in your mind. Ponder. Ponder the path of your feet. Think about how this is going to impact your life. Think about where you're going here. Thinking is difficult. Now, long story short, just because you hear something in a sermon doesn't necessarily mean you have to obey that message. Because just like the armed services, you have to obey all, what kind of orders? Lawful orders. So you are excused from obeying unlawful orders. But you have to know what is lawful and unlawful before you can make that decision. You're not bound to believe error. You're not, you're not obliged to agree with everything that I say because I say a lot of things that I know many of you probably don't understand or don't really believe or just are not ready to understand it yet because people have to grow into knowledge, right? Now, if a thing, though, is right, if it's obviously correct from Scripture, it should be obeyed. Now, a word of caution. There are people in the world who work to twist Scripture to support their love of sin. And some of the, some of the twistings I've seen done to the Bible are incredible. I went to church with a guy who we had a church, we had a church meeting. To, to, we, were, we actually were voting him out of the church. And, uh, <laughs> and we were voting him out of the church because uh, he, would, he, would, he had been knocking his wife around. And he would not, and when I say not, he would have been beating his wife, and he wouldn't, he wouldn't quit. Now, unbeknownst to the congregation, the pastor and the deacons had already had some dealings with him where they said, look, you can't, <laughs> it's funny the things you have to say to people. You can't, be, you can't profess to be a Christian and be abusing your wife. And so he, so he said, okay, I won't lay a hand on her. So he found a verse in the Old Testament where it talked about Miriam. And when Miriam cursed Moses and got leprosy, Moses said, if her father had spit in her face, she would have been ashamed, been ashamed or unclean seven days. Because in the Old Testament, and I'm sorry to get into this, but in the Old Testament, if, if the issue of somebody else's body, if you spit on somebody else, that person was unclean for seven days. And so this guy said, well, since you guys want me to knock my wife around anymore, the Bible says that if I spit in her face, that that's That's allowed. Now, I'm sitting there, I heard this in the in church meeting, I'm thinking, my first thought was, does, that, does the Bible even say that? <laughs> Ignorance, right? And then you go look at what the Bible actually says, and you see that this is not what it's talking about at all. And we voted that yard bird out of the congregation. If you're happy about that, say amen. I was happy to vote. I, was happy. I didn't like him anyway. <laughs> I was glad to see him leave. So... But he twisted the scriptures. He twisted them completely to suit his own devices. There are people who do that. I wouldn't be surprised if there's not people who do that here sometimes. Because we all like to make room for our particular sins. We all like to do it. Now, here's a little maxim for you to think about. An old rule of biblical interpretation. When the plain sense of scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense lest the result be 
nonsense. If the common sense makes sense. If the scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. The scripture here says cling to what is true. Cling to what is true. Jesus said in John 8, 31 and 32, the truth can set you free. Hold on to the truth. Because if you lose the truth, you'll be lost in the darkness. You need the sure truth. The absolute truth of Scripture is a sure foundation for life. And if you don't understand that now, as you begin to build your life upon the foundation of truth, you'll see it's very important. The truth of God's Word is the truth that you need in this hour, in this moment. And the third thing the Apostle says here is we should abstain from every form of evil. This seems to be talking about the false teachings. If you evaluate the sermons, you evaluate the teaching, and there's something that's errant there, you should abstain from it. And when I was a kid, we used the authorized version, and this, this said abstain from every appearance of evil, which is why we couldn't go, watch, that's why we couldn't go to the movie theater. Because, you know, somebody sees you going in there, they're going to think you're watching some dirty show. Like, is that what we're... <laughs> it was the ultimate verse. Kept me from doing a lot of fun stuff. <laughs> because who knows what appears evil to you, right? I'm, there could be somebody here in this room, God help us if there is, that to, to them, fishing appears evil. Forcing that sharpened steel into the fish's jaw. Hurting that little fish. Yeah. Could be somebody here who thinks that shooting Bambi is bad. We don't shoot Bambi. We shoot his mom and dad. (laughs) Bambi walks, baby. (laughs) But when you realize something is wrong from the scriptures, abstain from it. You know, that, that, that really will make your life better off. Because doing sins often complicates your life. Because one sin very often leads to another sin. And it snowballs on you. And next thing you know, you're going down the side of a mountain with an avalanche and you're just getting chewed up on the way down. Abstain from the evil. When you hear something, this is false, reject it. Now, when you hear preaching, you have to make an allowance sometimes because every preacher or teacher makes errors. I was teaching an afternoon youth class years ago called The Young Fund. Valerie's laughing already because she knows the story. She could probably come and tell it. but It's a shame for a woman to speak in church. <laughs> I was teaching an afternoon Bible class called The Young Fundamentalist. And it was, uh, I was teaching this class and... I was, I was reading my Bible, and I read about when the children of Israel, when they came out of, the, out of the wilderness, they crossed the Jordan River, they crossed in the Promised Land. And when the guys who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant, when their feet touched the water, the Jordan River parted, and the people passed over. And, it, and Moses said to 12 guys, go down and pull a rock out of the river from the feet of those men and put it on your shoulder and carry it into the Promised Land so that your sons and daughters will know that God brought them out. And they'll know that this will be, it's, it's an enduring testimony, it says. 
And when I read that in my Bible, I thought, Caden, I thought that they had to carry that rock their whole life. Caden, you're bad news. <laughs> I thought they had to carry that rock their whole life. And so my whole sermon was, You like, carry the rock. You know, get that rock on your shoulder and get out there, you know, and let everybody know. Be, <laughs> I just preached it up, man. <laughs> At the back of the room, there's this teenage boy named Jeremy Sims, who's grown now, and a Bible teacher in his own church somewhere, you know. And he was looking at me, and he looked at me kind of funny, and he kind of chuckled. He turned a page in his Bible, and he was reading the rest of the story. Because I'm preaching the fire out of this idea, you know, carrying this rock your whole life. You know, I said every day a little, little, little Bobby sees his dad pick that rock up and put it on his shoulder as he goes through his daily life, you know, doing the things he needs to do for the Lord. And he's got that rock everywhere he goes. But, but, but what they actually did, they just carried that rock to Gilgal and they built an altar out of it. <laughs> and the altar was the enduring, everlasting testimony. Because <laughs> when I went home that afternoon, I got my Bible out and read it and saw, oh, Terry, <laughs> you have erred. <laughs> and I did what all preachers do. I just pretended like it never happened. <laughs> just thank the Lord it wasn't recorded, you know, and put it on the Internet. So... I mean, preachers make mistakes. That's what I'm trying to say. It's sometimes preachers make mistakes. And you got to kind of factor that in. <laughs> as they can make mistakes. But if you regularly hear theological error from the pulpit of your church, that's something different. It's time to speak up or leave. And this can be difficult to do. I've never been in that situation. But you have to speak up or leave. Theological error can be fatal to your soul. James 3.1 says, Be not many masters, because they receive the greater com- condemnation. It's a serious business to get, it, to get it wrong. Now, some theological errors are from ignorance. And some are from immaturity. But some theological errors are intentional. My friend Don Fortner, he would say it like this. He would say, some preachers are intentionally obscure about things. That way people don't know what they're really saying. You can clothe in theological jargon. Abstain from the evil. When you realize it's there, abstain from the evil. Now, the fourth thing, when you're hearing preaching, sometimes pastors and preachers, they change their views on theology as they go along because they finally start to figure stuff out. Now, if you ever tried to read the Bible, you may have thought, this Bible, is, it, looks compl- it looks complex. It has some moving parts to it. There's, there's, a, lot, there's a lot of things here to, to, to uh, you know, when you put it in your belly and it moves around. Digest, thank you. Now, very few pastors and theologians preach the same things exactly when they start as when they finish. Because if you are a student of God's word, you're going to change your mind a lot. Because you're going to come to a more biblical view of God. 
Just like in school. Have you noticed how in school, in like first grade, kindergarten, the early years in the history classes, they just talk about how great everything was back in the day? Very general. But history is quite complex. I'm listening to a book now when I'm doing, when I'm doing something that I don't need to think, of, you know, do something I think about doing called The Last King of England about George IV. I'm going to tell you something. Was it George? George III. Thank you, dear. Always correcting me. Keep me out of the theological ditches. Why didn't you just write that in the sermon? <laughs> the last king of England. That last king of America. It makes more sense now. Was George III. And it talks about the American Revolution from the English perspective. Now, it's been blowing my mind. Blowing my mind. I'm reading another book right now. It's called Slavery and Freedom in America about the Virginia colony. That's blowing my hair back. Because you realize history, everybody just wants to simplify and streamline history. Good guys are always, the good guys always wear white hats. The black guys always wear black hats. You know, and the good guys always win because they kill all the guys in the black hats. Well, sometimes the guys in the black hats are not exactly bad. They're just bad for that moment because the white hat guys had a different viewpoint. It's just, it's, history, is, history is a trip. And so as you go work through the scriptures, you get a more robust view of God. Now, churches, unfortunately, are sometimes drugged through this as their pastors learn the truth of God more perfectly. So if I get to be your pastor the rest of my life, and you get to be around for that ride, well, you'll probably see, oh, Terry used to say this about that passage. Now he says something different. Why does why he, he change his mind? This happened to my dad, when my dad's pastor, Tom Pullen. He switched from a post-tribulation view of the rapture to a mid-tribulation view of the rapture. He, at the same church he passed, he passed a church 40 years. And when he switched to a mid-trib viewpoint, man, my dad was devastated. He was just upset. I remember my dad getting all bent out of shape, calling him on the phone, and, I can't believe you're so wrong! <laughs> so churches go along with their pastors in this discovery. You may say, well, I don't, I'm not too keen on change. Okay, me neither. Well, let's talk about Max Lucado. You guys know who Max Lucado is? Have you ever heard Max Lucado's name? Would you put your hand up? All right. So Max Lucado began his ministry as a pastor of a Campbellite church, the Church of Christ. Now, the Church of Christ believes that they're the only ones going to heaven. The only ones. Only people who've been baptized by immersion for or in order to receive the remission of sins are going to go to heaven. So they don't believe in justification by faith. They don't believe in security of the believer. They don't believe in the literal second coming of Jesus Christ because they have, they have kind of a uh, strange preteristic view of eschatology. But that's where Max Lucado started. And at the one church he's passed, he passed until he retired all the way through as he's studying the Bible as he goes along, his church becomes no longer a church of Christ, but becomes an evangelical church. You could probably call them Baptist. 
They didn't put Baptist on the sign. But they changed their position. The whole church, as their pastor, leads them in a better understanding of Scripture. Now, that's an example of some big-name person who we all know, we see his stuff everywhere, who made massive theological changes as he studies the Scripture and presents these cases to a church. I mean, if you've ever tried to debate, does anybody here ever know anybody who goes to the Church of Christ? Anybody? I do. And have you ever been in a debate with somebody from the Church of Christ? They are, they are tough. As they say in Texas, they're tough nuts to crack. Very tough. But man, just think about convincing a whole congregation that their view of the importance of baptism has been wrong for a hundred years. Just taking them through the Bible, understanding the way of God more perfectly. So churches go through this with their pastor. There's a man from Illinois, his name was Charles Chinicky, who founded a Catholic church in St. Anne, Illinois, in 1858. But when he died, this church was not a Catholic church anymore. It was a Presbyterian church. Catholic priest, understanding the Bible more perfectly, understanding the Bible more better. And he sees the error of Catholicism and leads his church. He doesn't leave his church and go get a new one. He takes the same church and preaches to them the Protestant doctrine of justification by faith and leads them into the Presbyterian, what's the old Presbyterian USA back in the day, this is in the 19th century. In his biography, he talks about how he got the church to quit venerating images. Because when they built this church, it had a basement, had like a basement under it, had a wooden floor. And the idols that they had, the, the Madonnas and stuff they'd had around the, the, the sanctuary, when the, all the people would come trooping in, they would vibrate. And almost fall off the pedestals. And so they had tied them up there with ropes. But he said, you really couldn't see it anymore. People didn't even think about it. So when he, did, when, when he made this, he was leading them away from venerating images. He went in there one Saturday night and cut all the ropes. And so the next morning when all the Catholics, they come streaming in there, you know, made such a vibration that the idols fell off the pedestals and crushed on the floor. And some dear sister in the church, she said, looks like the Lord knocked him down. You know, leading it, just incredible things can happen. Churches have to go along with it. Now they go along with what appears to come from the scriptures. Some pastors come from theological traditions that are already biblical. So as they make changes in their teaching positions, the changes are, are not cataclysmic, they're just fine-tuning. Just like deer season's coming, right? And you got a sight in your rifle. And I mean, how big's a deer? I mean, that big? That tall? All you got to do is get in the hair, right? But you guys are going to shoot your guns, and you're going to get it down to where it shoots sub-minute of angle, right? Three shots and cover it with a dime. Is that what you guys are aiming for? <laughs> Probably not. But it's just fine-tuning. And that's the tradition that I've come from. Most Baptists are that way. Very biblical, very sound theologically. So any, any modifications you make are just fine-tuning, and churches go through these things with their pastor. Now, to churches sometimes, the fine-tuning seems like a bigger deal than it really is. It seems more cataclysmic because nobody likes change, right? Are you guys still with me? 
All right. I feel led to just end. <laughs> That's my own kid that said amen. <laughs> now, this is the last thing to say, really. So we're right, we're right in there. When it comes to changes in theological viewpoints, both the pastors, preachers and teachers, and the churches they serve, they all need to have the same attitude towards Scripture. Is that if the Scripture says it, we're going to go with what the Bible says. I have to submit myself to Scriptures constantly. And so must you. And if you and I, if we are all in agreement on the authority of Scripture, and that we're going to obey God's Word, it makes everything so much easier. We're all going to wind up at the same place. We might have questions as we, as we go along. We have different perspectives. But that general submission to the authority of scriptures is key to our success as a church. So let's honor the Holy Spirit by respecting and valuing the word of God. Now let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as I, when I said just a minute ago, I'm submitting to your word all the time. In my mind, I thought of all the, the times that I do not submit to your word. And Lord, I pray you would forgive me for those kind of things. With, with Robert Robinson, I say, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. My prayer, Lord, is take my heart, take and seal it to thy courts above. Lord, I pray for my friends here this morning. They've listened to this sermon so well. I pray that these words, these exhortations to honor your word would be good for them, that they'll latch on to it. Help us to be a people who are truly devoted to your word above all things. And Father, I pray your blessing upon these people. I pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.